Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 74 of Yoga Land. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Jill Miller to the podcast. Before we get to the interview, a quick shameless plug. Jason's 300-hour advanced teacher training dates are up on the website. He's teaching modules in both San Francisco and in London next year. You don't have to do them in a particular order, and you don't have to do all three of them in one year or in one city. You can kind of mix and match according to your schedule and your needs. So go check out those dates at jasonyoga.com schedule. So talking to Jill Miller was just incredibly interesting. She's one of my favorite thinkers in the yoga world because her work is very innovative. She's the founder of the yoga tune-up method and the role model method, which is a method of rolling on different size balls to find all kinds of relief in the different layers of your being. I just think what's amazing about Jill is she started out doing yoga in her teens. She became, you know, very hypermobile and started having some pain. And this is probably about 10 years later. She tells the story in the podcast, but she came up with the role model method on her own. So everything that she teaches, she has experienced in her body. And I think that that is so essential for an honest practice. Everything that she puts out there, she's done through either her own self-exploration or her own self-study, as well as obviously studying the human body, as well as studying anatomy, as well as studying physiology. So she's a fascinating person to talk to, and she is incredibly honest because the day before we spoke in this interview, she made the announcement that she is about to undergo hip replacement surgery. And so she talks openly and honestly about that. I hear whispers now and then that, and I know I don't even know any names because no one else really comes forward, but I hear whispers now and then that quote unquote senior teachers in yoga have to have hip replacements or have, you know, chronic pain. And it's just refreshing to talk to someone who will speak openly and honestly about it. And also, you know, Jill doesn't throw yoga under the bus. She, she, she takes responsibility for some of her own role in, in what's gone down. So I hope you enjoy the interview. I would love to hear from you. You can follow me on Instagram. And you can also always send me a message at support at jasonyoga.com. Without further ado, here's the interview with Jill. So you wrote a blog post a few days ago announcing that you've recently learned you need to have a hip replacement. And I read through all of the comments on the blog post that you wrote and on your Instagram. And what I noticed is kind of what I've been hearing whispers about in the yoga community. And I'm just very grateful to you uh, for not whispering it, for just being forthright and talking about your experience. What I noticed is that there were a lot of people who seemed to be having chronic hip conditions, which they attribute to yoga practice which is, I think, hard for us to grapple with considering that we think of it as like a a healing practice. Yep. So I wonder if you could walk us through, you know, a little bit of the the diagnosis and what do you think the cause is for those, those people who haven't read the blog post? 
Sure. The the blog post is up on my Tune Up Fitness website, and it's it's pretty short. I mean, I actually wrote it's right now. There's over three thousand words. That's part of a chapter that's going to go into my new book. And so, I've been processing the diagnosis for about for about three months, and finally was and am at a point where I'm I'm ready to talk out loud about it. And I and I knew that I needed to talk out loud about it because my brand represents self-care fitness and it would be very incongruent for me to, you know, have a hip replacement in secret and not You're talk right. about it. And I mean, just, it's, it's not me. And, and it, what's even so weird even about that is it's like, there is this element that, you know, I've read in you know, a lot of the comments and just in, in exploring my condition, you know, over the last few months and, and over the past, let's say, 20 years because I've been fascinated by the human body and by pathology and by wear and tear and, you know, all of that stuff is that there is this element of, Oh my God, I failed. Like I failed, mm. I, I failed, something failed, but I don't actually feel that like, that's not a truth for me. And, and I'll explain my, my journey. But a, a lot of people I think do feel that way or that the practice failed them or that they, that they committed a crime in their practice. And, you know, it's very complicated mm -hmm. and just like every story, you know, you know, every, every story has many, many sides to it. It is a hundred percent, not just one thing, a hundred percent. There's no way it's one thing. It's mul multiple influences that I think got me to the point where I'm at and I'm just a lemonade person. So I'm just trying to learn as many lessons as I can. And I'm just open to how many lessons I've learned thus far and the ones I know are about to come because my life is about to change. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. I mean, I'm losing part of my biology that's served me for 45 years. So I think it was about maybe six or seven years ago, I had a twinge, a very uncomfortable twinge in the front of my left hip in a muscle called the tensor fascia lata. And I knew it was the tensor fascia because I'm an anatomy geek and I teach anatomy. And I'm like, this is a really weird pain. And it's such a small, tiny muscle. It's weird that I'm having this pain. So my first line of assessment is always to go to a physical therapist. If, if what I'm doing isn't working, I go to a physical therapist. And yeah. I went to the physical therapist that I know and trust the most from my years of, of other stuff. His name is Dr. Sean Hampton and he's here in Los Angeles. And, you know, it was just like, uh, you know, TFL, you know, spastic, let's work on strengthening your glutes. And it really didn't seem like there was anything uh, more systemic or problematic in that hip. But over the course of, you know, several years, that pain would occasionally come back and I would have a spasm in it. And I started to suspect that I might have a small labral tear. And I say a small, like a little <laughs> tiny labrum, like a little tiny a little chip. Tent, just a little Can you describe what the labrum is for people? The, the hip labrum. Yeah, it's basically an, ex an extension of your acetabulum. So your acetabulum is the, the, the concave part of your coxal joint, your hip joint it looks like a little cup. And there's a rim around that cup that is a buffer of cartilage that really helps to keep your, your femur in the socket and prevent the femur from scraping at the bone that's underneath the labrum, that's underneath that cartilage. And so labral tears are extremely common 
well, the word extremely. The label tears are not uncommon. Not they're common. Yeah, they're common. Mm-hmm. You see them in in athletes. Uh, Alex Rodriguez had it was famous for having a labral tear a few years ago. Lady Gaga, famous for having a labral tear years ago. Um, literally at the same time, they both went into surgery, I think within days of each other. And when somebody in their 30s or late 20s has labral surgery, it's usually a congenital condition. It's because there was some something not quite efficient about the development of the, the, the femoral neck, which is the bend where the femur bends and pivots, and then you have the the ball that fits in the socket. And that that bend happens when you start to walk in terms of the development of your anatomy. And so some of us, some some people just are born with, you know, who knows what circumstances create that. Bum labrums. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Bum hip joints. <laughs> yeah. So, so they, there are many different types of approaches to repair hip lab, you know, labral surgeries. And, and from what I hear, they're miserable. Like it's a miserable healing process. Labral tears. Like I was like, Oh shoot, if I have a labral tear, it's really going to be a long, miserable healing process because I've only heard that from people who've had labral tears mm. and not everybody. I mean, somebody's like, yay. But anyway, there, there are repairs that can be done. And often the labral tears can last, excuse me, the labral heal, the labral heal or the labral surgery fix can last a lifetime. And other times the movement cycles that are a part of that hip complex end up creating abrasive irritation in and amongst the bony surfaces and you start to develop arthritis. And so sometimes people with a labral tear end up having to get a total hip replacement down the road. Uh, Anyway, so I, I thought I might have a labral tear, but I was, it wasn't like I wasn't walking around in pain and this was an infrequent thing that would happen maybe every few months. And I was always able to manage it with my work. I I created yoga tune up and the role model method, all of which are methodologies that I developed because I knew that I had pushed myself too far in yoga practice. And I, many years ago. Yeah. Yeah. In my teens and twenties, I mean, I was that person with both legs behind their head, that person in the straddle splits, it was my ritual. It was my blanket. It was my movement meditation and get into that, that part of it. But any, so the suspicion was that I had a labral tear and, but I was also in my, my fertile years. Like my husband and I were determined to have kids. I didn't want to have any imaging done until I was certain that I had given life as much life as I could possibly give. And that was the most important thing to me. And so what I did start to notice is over that, that six years is that my range of motion in my left hip started to diminish. You know, at first it was like five degrees discrepancy between my right hip. And at this point now where I'm pre-surgery, it's easily 20, 20, about 20 degrees of discrepancy off. And so three months ago, my son was almost about to turn one. And I said, well, it's time to go get it imaged. I'm still nursing him, but it's like, okay, I made it to one. Yeah. I got, I got the image and when the image came back, it was, it was a story of there's no labrum. There's, there's, the joint is destroyed. There are bone cysts. There are multiple spurs. There are cysts in the membrane, synovial membrane. There's chondromalacia. There's a lot of bone on bone. There's no joint space. It's destroyed. I mean, and a lot, some of the comments on Facebook or Instagram have been, well, didn't you try conservative treatments before? And it's like, my lifestyle is conservative treatment. What Mm -hmm. I teach is conservative treatment. Mm -hmm. And yes, I did. I I went to my PT probably two times after that first episode 
you know, and I have strategies, survival strategies that kept me out of pain. Without the imaging, I didn't know I had this level of degradation. So that, that's one of the interesting parts, too, that you write about in the post. You say right in the beginning, this was going on. You, quote unquote, lived with chronic pain, but you didn't know it. And, and it because sounds it wasn't like it's pain. <laughs> because, and it sounds like it's because of all that you know how to do to exactly. take care of yourself. So this, yeah. So at this point, this was happening and you weren't in pain. And you, and I'm just wondering, I mean, just to clarify, like, do you think that this degradation of the joint happened many years ago or do you yes, think it's been absolutely. like a gradual? Yeah. I'll tell you when I was doing the straddle splits, Andrea from, I don't know, age you know, 23 to 34, which mm-hmm. is like the peak or mm-hmm. 33, whatever, 33, 34 every day after practice, you know, cause whatever I would maybe practice in a class, but then I would have to do my own little stretches afterwards. <laughs> or if I was doing my own practice, you better believe straddle splits was my dessert. Like it was just one of my dessert poses. I call them dessert poses because boy, do they add extra calories and are completely frivolous at this point. And I'm sure that people are going to be really offended by me saying that, but I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have hips that were appropriate for the straddle splits. And, um, you know, I know now because of my studies in anatomy and biomechanics, which anyway, all right, so let's back up. So every time I go into the straddle splits, I would hear a pop in my left hip, Hmm. a pop in my left hip that caused no pain. Hmm. So what I know now is that that pop was an excessive distraction of the joint. And I probably was over was lengthening the femoral acetabular ligament. That's the ligament that is basically helping to keep your femoral head in there. I, you know, who knows if that thing's even there anymore. That'll be interesting when I, when I have surgery to see what that looks like. I'm really curious yeah. to see that little poor elastic, you know, helpless piece of tissue. You're going to have to give your surgeon a list of things before you go. Okay. Make a note of this, make a note of that. I want to know all these things. I mean, I'm asking them for the bone. I don't know if they're going to give oh, it to me. Wow. He said, he said he would, but They'll have to, I think, fill out some paperwork to get it. Oh my gosh, Jill, that is intense. Wow. Yeah, well, come on. I mean, I've dissected bodies before. Yeah. Arthritic joints are amazing. They're so interesting to look at. Yeah. They're all bubbly and crystallized and odd. Yeah, so I, I really think that I, I started the process in my probably, you know, teens and 20s. I was into aerobics. I was into running. I was way into hours and hours of yoga a day and weekly. And then I was teaching. So by the time I was 34 and I had actually, I, when I was 34, I had pain in my left knee and it was just this weird pain. And I I went, I did, I went to an ortho and he x-rayed me and there was nothing. So it was literally at that point where I was going down sidewalks, you know, walking off a step and my left knee hurt. I knew I had to change the way I was practicing. And that literally was within the next nine, 10 months is when I started calling my work yoga tune up. And I just stopped teaching the poses that I had been doing for decades and started to work on really the fine particulars of my movement um, and just reeled it in and started focusing on strength, stability, congruency, and self-massage. Back when you were practicing the really intense poses, were you in pain? Like, did you feel, because, you know, I saw some people were a little freaked out. Like, what do you mean you didn't feel pain? Like, how would I, how will I know if I'm injured? We actually have the ability to bypass some of those pain signals. We can sublimate them through meditation, through breathing, through movement, um, through disassociation or 
focusing on other things, like say I'm going to focus on a mantra or do japa while I'm, I'm sitting in lotus for 30 minutes, there are ways of even though we're using our body as the medium of meditation, um, th- th- it's possible to numb out to mm-hmm. Signals, just like you numb out when you drink too much liquor. I numbed out from too much stretching. Mm. And, you know, philosophically right now, what is stunning me again and again is that I was, I didn't know I was living in chronic pain because I didn't have the owl part of chronic pain. That doesn't mean that the chronic pain wasn't changing the spectrum of inflammation in my body or impacting different brain centers because I have some weird symptoms now. Like I have an allergy to cold that just sprung up in the last five years. If you put me underneath an AC vent, my entire face can blow up in a histamine reaction. If I hold on to an iced coffee, my fingers blow up. So you know it's called cold urticaria. And I'm just wondering if some of these weird, like new symptoms that I have are actually related to imbalances that came about in, you know, non-conscious, you know, brain centers that were processing pain in the way that they do, because not all of your pain is going to be sensed in your sensory motor, sensory motor cortex. And to me, that's what's so fascinating, but it correlates with all these studies that are like, you know, your MRI results don't necessarily mean you're going to feel pain, but Mm. you know what your, but your brain is still processing. Your blood is still processing this on levels that are, are beyond your ability to just to sense. Mm. And as much as I'm a, a sensory junkie, full, I didn't have the full experience of it. And I'm so grateful actually that I'm going into surgery with, I would say 8% of the pain that people who I've talked with who have had hip replacement, they're like, you're going to feel so good afterwards. You're not going to feel the pain. And it's like, well, you know what? I don't, most days I don't have any pain or even a twinge. And so I feel a little bit like, but it's because of the work I've done that I've been able to I want to say avoid the pain, but I just, I don't experience the owie part of the pain that, so that a make, lot of people do. Yeah. It makes, <laughs> it makes sense to me that you haven't felt the pain since you've started doing the tune-up work. I'm actually surprised to hear that you didn't feel the pain early on when you were doing the really intense, deep poses. That knee pain episode was a big thing. And I, I do remember having a, a slip in my left SI joint for a while in my gosh, probably when I was 28 or 29, or maybe 30 or 31. And it, but, but I changed the way I worked my butt. I stopped doing, I don't remember what I stopped doing, but probably legs behind the head. Yeah. Um, And then it went away, you know, like I stopped stressing my joints in Mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. So, okay. One of the things that your, the, the practitioner who you mentioned in the blog, I don't, I don't know what kind of MD he is, but he was your, your doctor said was maybe it's genetic and you were kind of like, nope, but it does sound like just to kind of help people understand you have a baseline of hypermobility that is huge, right? I mean, for you to be able to do absolutely that you used to be able to do, you have to have just an extremely hypermobile body. So I'm just wondering, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, as just as we think about these things with this this practice that that we call yoga, I'm putting you on the spot here. So answer it how you want to answer it. But I just wonder if you've thought about like if I could go back, I would say my body shouldn't do X, Y, or Z have done X, Y, or Z pose. And actually I would go so far as to say 
maybe nobody should do X, Y, or Z pose. I definitely have some nobody should do X, Y, or Z pose speeches. Yeah. And I'm okay with, with, um, you know, obviously saying it now, hindsight's 2020. Like uh, <laughs> yeah. I've got the, I've got the imaging to, to prove it. I could do it. It didn't hurt. It felt amazing. I loved doing the straddle splits. I loved doing legs behind the head. I loved interlacing, you know, tying my body in a knot and playing with teachers who would help me tie myself into a knot. Okay. So part, let me answer, let me talk about my surgeon first of all. So the, he said that my hypermobility was my pre-existing condition. And not only, first of all, I made myself hypermobile, Andrea, because when I first started doing yoga at age 12, 11, 12, I couldn't touch my toes. I remember oh, how much wow. it hurt to stretch. I was a chubby kid and I was very scholarly. I was, I had the big thick glasses. I was the one that got teased and I was short. So like I it was the whole package, glasses, short, you know, smarty pants and chubby. Um, and, but you are determined. Well, I have a very strong will. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have very strong will. I got into my body because my mom brought home the Jane Fonda workout and the Raquel Welsh yoga video. And those videos lit me up. I remember that. And I became, yeah, I became, yeah. of course you do. Yeah. I became, I became obsessed with them. Um, but I also at the same time, and I became obsessed with them. I became obsessed with not eating and I became anorexic. So I had two different disorders going on at the same time. I was over exercising, over exercising, and I was not eating them. Frankly, those are psychiatric disorders that needed to be addressed and that I work with still on a daily basis in my, in my emotional landscape so that I um, nurturing myself in the ways that I, that I wasn't back then, right? My coping mechanism, I figured it out. It was like, starve yourself and stretch yourself and push yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And push yourself. Right. So I had internalized the, the, this push mentality from um, my family. So I wasn't like a hypermobile person. I stretched and I think probably genetically, I, I, you know, I'm Romanian and Russian. Like I probably do have a great range of motion from my ancestors. I mean, you look at the Romanian gymnast. So I think that is probably part of my DNA, but I was so tight from never doing any movement. So when I first started moving, I was really tight. I quickly gained range and I was a dancer in um, college. So I, I really learned my way around my body. I learned my way around my joints and I think that that was really a, a notable feature of me as an artist and, you know, the really mobile kids when they dance, it's, you know, they, they look at, it's, it's an aesthetic, right? It's something that you strive for. So I was used to really pushing my flexibility to get those articulations in, in dance. And I'm not talking about ballet because I sucked at ballet. My turnout wasn't very good. Hello hip surgery. <laughs> you push your hips to do more than they're supposed to. That is one of the things that can possibly set you up. Yes. Yeah, so I think I did have a genetic predisposition of being hypermobile, which I also embellished. Like I'm not, I don't want, it's not yoga's fault. It's my desire to feel the limits of my body, which I couldn't feel by the way, Andrea, I was so overstretched. I didn't have the feedback. Mm. And that's why for me, strength training is so amazing. Now it's like reeling it back and doing very stable, almost, you know, boring linear work because I was so expansive mm -hmm. and I was so overstretched and I couldn't feel my end range of motion. 
which is a is a a failure of proprioception. It's a failure of body sense. But all of that made me feel so good on a like, you know, calm me down kind of level. Yeah. Yes, I was doing moves that were inappropriate for me, but they didn't look inappropriate. If you look through the the volume of images that I took from whatever my early twenties through my thirties, anybody would be like, "Oh my God, your alignment's awesome." Mm-hmm. But that that didn't mean that I wasn't doing harm. So, what are the poses that you would say? You know, eh, probably shouldn't have done that one, and uh, I would maybe even consider saying. Let's reconsider this in the yoga canon. This, for me, the obvious one, like you said, it's two legs behind the head, yogi nidrasana, and then the other, the one where you're forward doing that supta kormasana, where the two legs are behind the head. I mean, I've just seen very few people where that seems like it Comfortable. makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. mean, I, well, I, that's the thing. It's like, God, that felt so good. Um, well, it's an energy release, right? It's, a, it's an incredible... I mean, think about like the way that you must be moving energy in your body doing that because it's, it's stressing the body in certain ways. It's never been stressed before. And it's just like things are positioned differently in ways that they've never been positioned before. So I think you definitely get a high doing these, especially when it, when it fits and Mm -hmm. it fits because, you know, either your joint range of motion permits that, or you are so warm that you're able to stretch beyond a safe range. So yeah, I, I definitely think that legs behind the head can be can be really problematic. It's not something that you can typically control your way to get to. You have to do sort of a a a, a little bit of a fling or a flick, wedging. You sort of wedge yourself, wedge, wedge. wedge. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like a too tight yoga clothing. You're like your own body is uh, not accommodate to that, but. So in terms of the hip stuff for me, for me, what was bad news bears was the straddle splits. So when you say straddle splits, splits, do you mean upavishta konasana, samo konasana? So leaning, so upavishta, but then leaning forward, and then I mean feet. 180 degrees. I mean having right. ankle pelvis ankle in the exact same straight line, like a cheerleader, ankle pe- like a pel- solid. Yeah. And then your chest on the ground as well, right? Your pubic symphysis on the ground, your chest on the ground. You can roll through it like a solid gold dancer. That I'm telling you, (laughs) it is. It was fun while it lasted, right? (laughs) I, I do laugh because it's so inappropriate for my joint range. I have to laugh. I'm going to cry too. Yeah, you have to laugh. I'm sorry. I don't mean to, yeah. I'm not trying to make light of the situation, but I am kind of trying to. If you saw me dancing in my, you know, college days and in my 20s, I had a a female dance theater company and we did crazy stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like what kids do now with parkour. It's like, you just do crazy stuff when you're in your 20s. And I have who knows what else I set in motion. And so now I'm looking at the clock, you know, I've been doing therapeutic work for the last 12 years, but I'll tell you a story. Um, I haven't mentioned any of my teachers here and my teacher, since I was uh, 18, 19 years old, Glenn Black, he is sort of famous for being a yogi rogue and, and saying to the New York times, yoga is not for everyone. And people got so pissed at him but he was my, he was my teacher and he's still my teacher. And I called him a few weeks ago to let him know about my hip. And he, 
he he reminded me that well you know this yoga teacher named this yoga teacher she just had her hips done this other famous yoga teacher just had her hips done this he's like literally going down the wow the laundry list of teachers that have succumbed and but if i if i rewind that story in about 2006 maybe 2005 2006 I was teaching at the Omega Institute in um, upstate New York. I was teaching a, a retreat there, and he lives close by, and that's how I, I met him back in 1989, um, was at the Omega Institute. So I would go over to his house, and we would do body work, or I was over at his house and actually giving him some feedback on a book he had written because he wrote this little lovely book on yoga practice. And because I'm a, a writer person, I was giving him notes about the chapters and syntax and just, you know, English, English language stuff. Mm -hmm. And while he was sitting and listening to my notes and writing notes down, he kept having a like jerky spasm in his back. And I knew he had been having back pains. I mean, like inconsolable back pains. And he had had an MRI reading and he had no more disc between his fifth lumbar and, and sacral plateau. He decimated the disc and wasn't ready to get surgery, although he needed it because he was in a, a lot of pain. And after I gave him the notes, I just, I turned to him and I just said, hey, you know, Gwen, do you, do you think that your, your back pain is from your fall? A year prior to that, he'd had a terrible fall. He was cleaning the boat and slipped and he fell onto um, a wheel and it, crushed his ribs, his ribs pierced his lungs, and he was rushed to the hospital, and luckily he lived. That was a game changer for him for pain, because what that accident did was it lit up other pains in his body that he didn't know he had. That that disc crush wasn't from the fall. He just turned at me, turned to me, and he said, you know, the, the disc loss was not from the fall. It was from yoga. It was from long holds and deep back bends mm. and forward bends. He said 30 minute holds. You know, oh. he studied, he studied with Iyengar in Pune, I don't know, seventies or eighties. And a lot of the prescriptives he was given were these very long holds, very long holds. And, um, we used to do very long holds. I mean, we would do headstand, shoulder stand and plow pose. Five minutes each, yeah. right in a row. Yeah, I used right to do five row. minutes each. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I had so much neck range of motion. Holding a five-minute shoulder stand or plow pose was like nothing for me. Right? Yeah. Same. Yeah. And and I could keep my back muscles engaged, and I could you know do all that. Nonetheless, as we're driving home from, he drove me back to campus after I gave him the feedback and after we'd had started this this talk. And as we're driving back to campus he turns to me while we're driving and he says, I'm sorry. And I said, stop. I don't want to hear it. Do you th was he saying he was sorry because yes. he himself had been, he like was fallible? That I his think body failed him? He said he was sorry because I don't think he ever expected that yoga was going to destroy his body. And he was teaching to the limits of his own best knowledge when he taught me. And I love my teacher and I love him forever. I learned so much from him. And I think that he 
like any teacher, feels an obligation, like when they recognize that they might have been wrong in their instructive, yeah. their guidance. Yeah. He felt it was the right thing to do. I knew where that sorry was going and I didn't need to hear anymore. Well, what I hear from you a lot right now is just like, which is not surprising because you're a mature, intelligent person and you've done so much work on yourself. But I just, I just hear you taking a lot of personal responsibility, which I held the pose. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't force me to hold the pose. Absolutely. I held the pose. Yeah, no. And I get it. And I, I feel similarly, I guess what I want to try to figure suss out. And obviously this is like a long conversation that many of us have to have, but it's just like, so where do we go from here? You know, and obviously part of where we go is the work that you've created for yourself and for all, all these other people which is, um, you know, the self-massage with the tune-up balls. I actually just ordered my balls the other day. By you the don't way. have them? Well, I have like not your balls. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I didn't know. Oh, Andrea, I <laughs> no. didn't know. I thought you had them. I feel terrible. Oh my gosh, don't feel terrible. I feel terrible, terrible. <laughs> anyway. Oh, I have, we have like a bazillion balls in our house, I'm but sure for some do. reason we don't have your balls. So I want, I want you. Oh my gosh. It is very funny to talk about your balls. Yes, okay. So let's go here for, for a moment, you know, given your background, um, given the, the system that you've created, what parts of yoga do you still practice and what, and like what parts are still valuable to you in your own practice and what parts do you still feel like are just valuable for all of us? Well, one thing that I, I think that when people see those images of me doing straddle splits or legs behind my head. They just think, oh, she was just a shell off, you know. I was also meditating for almost as long as I was doing asana. So I had like, I was such, I was so into it, Andrea. Yeah. I would do a two-hour asana practice and then an hour and a half meditation practice. And I had no friends. Like, I was so <laughs> into it. Well, you you talked about how it was sort of like your own self-treatment for, for this, the internal stuff that was going on. You talk about that well in your book. Yeah, it was definitely my my stress relief. And you know, interpersonal relating was not my best thing. And as an adult now and as a mommy and as a as a wife and a business owner, my biggest work is my emotional health. It's mm -hmm. not it's not my rotator cuff. Mm -hmm. It's getting back those family pieces that I ran from. So the meditation part of the meditation, the down regulation, the ability to slow down time, um, to see, to really see and feel the experience of, of your process, you know, that can't be seen when you're clicking on clicks or mm -hmm. changing channels or, you know, rushing in, in the other way. I mean, I, I love that about yogic practices. I considered my approach to movement a very yogic one because it is something that is deeply internally focused for the expression of, I guess, honesty in my body. Andrea Jain, she was on a, a presentation panel that I did with uh, Matthew Remsky back in Toronto. Michael Stone was part of that panel, Carol mm. Horton, Diane Bondi, back in, in uh, April of this past year. And she's a yogic researcher. She had the best definition of yoga ever, which is 
yoga is what you say it is, which really freed me up because I've always felt that the yoga police were mm-hmm. going gonna... <laughs> to... It's so true. 11 years ago, when I coined the term yoga tune-up, I deliberately was like, this practice needs a tune-up. The overstretching is not serving me anymore. And I need to tune my body up. I need to mm. tune this thing up. It didn't, wasn't mean like, here's one better than yoga, but it was like, we need to disassemble the minutia of the poses and make sure that your joint articulations are a good match. And if they're not, we're going to modify the heck out of the poses or isolate components of the poses so that you actually ultimately get all the pose, but aren't necessarily being forced into one architectural shape that overtaxes certain joints while other joints go to sleep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I created yoga tune up for that reason. And, and that's for me, that's what yoga is to me. It's this attention to all the blind spots in my, my body, my mind and my interrelating that need some attunement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You talk about developing, you know, I, I actually love the description. I've always wondered how you developed the system because, you know, I think anyone who's listening to this podcast has rolled on a foam roller before or, you know, been told to roll on a tennis ball. But your system is like, is so nuanced. So I was very curious and I love in the book how you describe, you know, you had moved away from where you were living and where you had access to Glenn Black. So you'd moved far away mm-hmm. from him and you couldn't find another hands-on practitioner that where it just felt like that same great feeling. So you were like rubbing yourself against furniture and using sticks and using <laughs> this and that, trying to figure it out. I just thought that description was so funny. And I also just, I really appreciate your talking about, you know, your eating disorder and your emotional experiences because I, I just think it's it's so important and it's also important to destigmatize these things. And it's important to talk about how, you know, I, I've been very open about my experience with anxiety and depression in my 20s. And mm-hmm. it's important to be like, we're in our 40s now and we've yeah. got tools. There yeah. are tools. So it seems to me like the balls were, it sounds like the balls were both a way to tune up your body, but also it seems like it had an emotional effect as well or a nervous system effect, or can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I I really think the nervous system effect for me is the big win for them. I mean, number one, they put you in touch with yourself. Why? Because they're they're a palpation tool. So they give your body a sense of touch. And if you're touch starved, which uh, I definitely was. That's why I loved massage school and I loved getting massages. It's I was a little, little touch-starved person. I'm mm. like a touchy-feely person. And so the self-massage tools were a way of getting that reflex exercised, literally, right? Also, the the sensory pathways, many of those sensory pathways are connected to your downregulation centers. They, When you're touched in a nurturing, tender intentional way, it 
upregulates the vagus nerve and that helps you to calm down and relax. So I am pretty particular about, you know, how we use the tools. We don't use the tool. It's like, it doesn't have to hurt to work. These are not meant to grind out and rip you or shred you or, um, you know, hurt you, but they will point out where you have hurt. They will point out where you have stiffness and poor sliding amongst different tissue layers, your fascial layers. But that relay of the relaxation response for stress modulation helps with the tissue recovery and it helps with those attempts at getting intra-tissue stretch in those tight spots. So for me, it's key that there's a yogic approach, I suppose, to using the tools so that you're using them in a conscious way. You're aware of what buttons they're pressing on you. So it's just, it's just like when you lay down in Shavasana and you start the process of Shavasana, you know, you can feel these different stages of relaxation. And the same thing is true with using these tools, even though you are moving, you know, the attempt is to create an environment for optimal adaptation to occur. And that adaptation would be that you go into states of healing and restoration and regeneration so that the tool can be a benefit. Just like when a great massage therapist works on you, sometimes you're, you're knocked almost unconscious, just conscious enough to stay present and to feel and to provide feedback, but you're not hyper aroused and you're not stressed out and you're not anxious. Like this should be a tool to help with that. And when I actually, when I wrote the book, The Role Model, I put a call to action out to my community and I asked for stories. And the, and I expected people to come back, oh, well, I used the balls to heal from my hip replacement, or, you know, I avoided spine surgery, or, you know, it helped me with my uh, tennis elbow. And I really expected all those biomechanical stories. Yeah, yeah. But the majority of stories were about stress regulation, were about, I used these when my son was coding in the hospital and I was all, all day, all night with him. Um, I, I found my way back to my body after I had been raped through using these, the therapy balls. I mean, the number of people who used them for that same blanket effect, that same snuggle blanket, that coping mechanism, the, the, the balls became a positive side effect drug versus, you know, other drugs that you could take to numb yourself or to get calm instead of oxy, you know, introduce yourself to your internal pharmacy through this practice. Yeah, you have a lot of great stories of chronic pain relief too from yes. your system, which I think obviously, like you mentioned, is just so important right now. Oh my God, right. I mean, just even today, the headlines, like this is, it's just stunning. It's an epidemic, yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think it, just speaking to that a little bit, I mean, it's just so many people are in so much physical pain, mental pain, and this you know, rolling on balls, like you said, even though, even though it might point out painful areas, painful spots, it's generally like a very pleasurable thing to do. It's just a soothing thing to do. So it just totally, it just totally makes sense. This is what convinced me to order your balls <laughs> from all the ones that we have that are different from all the ones that we have in our house. So can you talk a little bit about the quality, the characteristics that are different? Yeah. And also, I loved the story. I heard it on a different pop podcast of the gorgeous ball and how that came to be because I used to do the belly bolster. You know, the Iyengar belly bolster. Yes. The, the sand. Yeah. Just, I had such a love hate relationship with it. 
Yeah. So I can't wait to try something that's just more giving and forgiving, a ball that's, you know, made for that. Okay. So all, all of the role model balls are made from grippy, pliable rubber. And the grip is really important because what the grip does is it sticks to your skin. And whenever you roll the balls, the therapy balls create a attraction effect from the skin to the deeper layers. So it grips the skin, it moves the superficial fascia, that fatty layer. It excites the sliding zone between the superficial fascia and your deep fascial layers. And then because of pressure, it's able to create touch pressure into your myofascias, your muscles. And depending on your positioning and depending on how you're moving, the traction effect can create stretch all the way down to the bone. And we've got some cool dynamic uh, ultrasound images that my friend Robin Capobianco and her husband, Stephen Capobianco, Dr. Stephen Capobianco, have gifted me from studies that they've done in Colorado. And she's actually researching some pretty interesting stuff about this, the sensory neurons and their relationship with the yoga tune-up balls. So she's, she's ball obsessed and she's a, getting her doctorate in neurophysiology. And she's actually gotten published with her first study, which was on the Achilles and the calf. And I'm not going to get all into it, but the cool thing is that the, the grip, we think the grip and traction of the therapy balls is the thing that's upregulating the sensory system to such a way that it not only improves range of motion, but the surprising result is that it improved force production and improved torque. So it actually improved the performance of explosive output of the muscle after the balls were rolled on this area of the body that was studied. And that's a surprising thing because a lot of, a lot of the, the studies that have looked at foam rolling or stretching have indicated a lessening of force output, but the therapy balls showed the opposite, which is very promising for performance. I'm supposed to be talking about the balls and now I'm, I'm sidelining the properties of the balls. Now I'm talking about some deep science. Okay. So they're grippy. They create traction. They're pliable. The pliability means that when the therapy balls roll over and around bony prominences, they don't pinch, bruise, or annoy those bony prominences. The balls have a little amount of gush to them. And so they conform to your own form. So for example, if you're using the yoga tuna balls along your spine, you know, your spine has lots of contours and lots of jutting prominences. And if you're using something like a lacrosse ball, it's a lot of pressure and you'll end up feeling skin pinching and uh, irritation. The yoga tuna balls contour into the grooves. And so they're able to still get their traction effect into the in-between spaces where a lacrosse ball, because it's completely solid, it will not be able to dive into those contours. They're grippy and they're pliable. The There's four different sizes. The yoga tune-up balls are smaller than a tennis ball. The therapy ball plus are a little larger than a lacrosse ball. The alpha ball, which we use on large body mass parts, is about the size of a softball, maybe a little bit smaller. And then there's the air-filled gorgeous ball. And the air-filled gorgeous ball is inflated with a little tiny straw that it comes with the package. And you can deflate it or inflate it to tension that's comfortable for you. So when you get your gorgeous ball, for example, example Andrea, and you put it in your abdomen, mm-hmm. 
you may be more comfortable with having a little less air in it than having it all the way inflated and taut. Right. Okay. Like if I only had one ball, like if I, someone said, you can only have one ball the rest of your life, it would hands down be the gorgeous ball because it is able to talk to, for me, some of my most valuable parts of my body, which is my heart and my guts and my breath. It is a tender tool that you can use on the anterior rib cage, lateral rib cage, back of your rib cage, abdomen, low back. It's not a fine tool. So Mm -hmm. whereas the yoga tuna balls, you can get into really tiny specific muscles of the face, the hands, the pelvic floor, the gorgeous ball, we like, we like to use it mostly for the trunk, but it also has that grip. So you can create some really wonderful massage and shear with it as well and train breathing mechanics with it. And a lot of people with abdominal surgeries, uh, C-sections, appendectomies, um, heart surgery, will use the cordless ball to help mobilize scar tissue as well. So let's go back to, well, I think we're going to do another episode, right? On fascia. Oh, sure. Sure. Oh, I'd be be delighted. Yeah. Because then we can, I would love to get into a lot more detail with you because I just think it's so fascinating and helpful. One thing I want to make sure I ask you on this episode before we go is I had a listener ask what I think is a great question, which is, you know, how can we help cue our hypermobile hyper students so that they'll be willing to pull back and, and stabilize without making them fearful of their own bodies? Yeah. It's tough, right? I'm a really big fan of building trust with your body and to find pleasure in it. And I certainly don't want to put fear into people that their yoga practice is damaging them or could be damaging them, but, but it could, anything could, you know, it's like falling can damage your body. And maybe yoga is just a very long controlled fall. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, but again, I wasn't just doing yoga. I was all, no, I, and I, I actually want to interject for just a moment and say, that was the thing that really frustrated me about William Broad those several years ago who wrote about the dangers of yoga for the New York times, any physical endeavor that you do to your body, you do have to take some level of personal responsibility and say, anything can happen (laughs) when you're going to do things to your body. I mean, I think, I think what we have to be careful of in the yoga community is the tendency to oversell it to oversell yoga as this, the end all be all number one. Mm -hmm. And as this, the, you know, the ultimate source of healing, it's like medicine in the right dose is healing medicine in the wrong dose will kill you. Um, so anyway, I, now I feel like I'm getting off track, but you were saying, well, because I, I mean, I was all in, I thought yoga was a panacea. I did. I thought it was a panacea. I bought into it hook, line and sinker. I started practicing yoga like a a vigil when I was a teen. My father saw me practicing in the living room. My dad's a doctor. I was stretching on this beautiful like carpet. He had like a carpet that looked like this mandala. And of course I practiced right in the middle of that carpet. And I just felt so, "Mm." and I remember him coming to the living room and he like leaned forward on a chair and he was scrutinizing me and I got very uncomfortable and he just was staring at me. And then, I don't know, I must have looked up at him and, and finally he just said, we really need to talk about this obsessive compulsive need you have to stretch. Mm. 
And it just broke me mm. on the inside. But there was some truth to that. Like he was worried that I was, a, I was like an OCD. Like mm. I was OCD. I couldn't stop myself. It's what made me feel right. Mm. So I'm coming, I'm, I'm coming at it from this admission. Like I, I abused it. I abused myself and I abused it, but it gave something to me. And then it was also my way out. Like, you know, because you, you know, like a food addict, which I was too, you still have to eat food. I still have to move Andrea. What mm -hmm. not is not moving going to be my answer. No. So I had to figure out, I had to go under the line, over the line, under the line, over the line to find my balance. And I'm still trying to find it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't practice seven days a week. Like I used to, I'm lucky if I get three days of practice in, mm -hmm. but I feel great in my body because I do these other things and I have a lot of love in my life. Yeah. 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 I'm so happy. You know? about that. Yeah. And I didn't before. Right. So right. I didn't have a complete, I wasn't living a complete, my Dharma, right. I just didn't have all the eight limbs going. I hope this is helpful for people to hear. I look back on my twenties and I'm like, woo, glad I don't have to do that again. Totally. That <laughs> phase of life where you are a young adult and you are on your own is hard. If you are out there listening and you are in your twenties, it's hard. Life is messy. You're organizing. You are figuring yourself out. It's just, you know, you just got to do your best. And like, it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, like on one side of the coin, to use your words, you know, you abused it, the yoga practice, but then look at all that it gave you and then look where totally. it led you. It led you to more self-discovery, which is really the point. Yep. Yeah. If for someone who's listening and they just want to start, what's your recommendation for, for starting out in terms of how many minutes a day? I think a nice way that you suggested a nice way to do it is before you start practicing. You could do it before your yoga practice. Oh, you mean rolling? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, I do think it's a good thing to do before you start um, practicing because you can address any accumulated stresses or known body tensions that tend to pop up overnight. For example, I'm a side sleeper, so I tend to have a little bit of schmutz in my you know, shoulder and neck just from sleeping on my side. And also, I'm, um, I'm a nursing mom, and so I tend to carry my kid. I try to carry him as well as possible, but sometimes you're like in a rush and they're kicking and they change their mercurial weight, like, <laughs> like nothing else. And yeah. you're, you're just, you're so life happens and you, you're on a plane for seven hours and then you're stuck on the runway. So do a little bit of rolling out of those areas of your body that are what you feel maybe your common um, tension spots, but also if you feel like these are your common tension spots, a good thing to do is also to look at the opposite. So for example, in terms of yourself, right? You're like, oh, I have all this pain in my upper back, but the pain isn't necessarily because of your, because of your upper back. It's because the scar tissue in your anterior side is pulling those tissues long. And so creating massage massaging the opposite thing mm. can often help. And we go into much more detail on, on the breakdown of what that is in, in our role model trainings. And so it's like, it's not always the pain isn't always what you should be rubbing. Often it's the, the discomfort is because other things are imbalanced and that becomes really interesting. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So yeah, I think a few minutes before, because also it will will heighten your body awareness and it will relax you so that you can approach your yoga, your yoga practice in slow motion and with conscious awareness and to put you in a, in a mind frame of optimism and generosity to yourself rather than that the, the, the practice is is one of flagellating yourself or yeah, 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 yeah. What do you see for people, for your, your yogis who come to your trainings, who have already, I think, more proprioception than the average bear, right? Those of us who've done yoga for a while. What are the responses that they have? Are they ever surprised by, by their blind spots? Oh, totally. When they start, yeah. I mean, Yoga Tune-Up uses proprioceptive tricks and interoceptive tricks to have people run over those areas like a speed bump and then they they become this brilliant billboard they sense it like a billboard and it becomes a new way of sewing your seams back together like being the conscious tailor of your body hmm. is part of what happens in the context of yoga tune up or or role model work it's really exciting to watch people find their way through their body in ways they've never found themselves before. One of the analogies is, you know, a way, the way around your house in the dark better than, you know, your way around your own body. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be that way. I feel, I feel like the ultimate Svadhyaya is, is being able to navigate through every system of your body with conscious awareness, like a somanot, as my anatomy mentor, Gil Headley says, become a somanot so that you can become more and more of who you are. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I loved at the end of your book, when you talk about kind of having a vision for, and I, I just relate to it so much. Like now that I have a child, you know, having a, envisioning a world where kids are taught body hygiene. Thanks as always for listening. I will put show notes, including that link to the YouTube video about working with scar tissue. And Jill also has a lot of resources on her blog, on her website. She has different videos. So I will put links to all of that on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 24. And as I mentioned in the interview, we're going to do another interview soon about fascia. That was the original intention of this interview for me was to talk to her specifically about fascia because I've been reading so much about it lately and trying to piece it all together, no pun intended, listening to podcasts, reading more books, reading articles. And Jill, for me, has sort of the best grasp on a really useful way to talk about it and to to visualize it. So that was what we had initially planned to talk about. And then we kind of got sidelined to the story of of her progression and her hip surgery so we will talk about that soon coming up soon if you have any comments or questions for jill for the upcoming interview you can email me at support at jason yoga and i will make a note and try to ask those questions of her if you are enjoying the podcast and you haven't done it yet please leave me a review on itunes five star reviews are two thumbs up And uh, until next week, enjoy your practice.